The Tennis Gambling Podcast and the Sports Gam Podcast are presented by Circa Sports. Circa Sports is back with their Circa Survivor and Circa Millions contests. $14 million up for grabs. Get all the details at circasports.com. Welcome, everybody, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast here in the Sports Gambling Podcast Network. It is currently Thursday afternoon, July 13th. Number host is always Scott Rochelle, once again going solo for this pod. Should be a fun one because it is time to go through the men's semis at Wimbledon taking place on Friday. A couple of really good matches because of how chalky the overall draws were, but I'll get into that in a second. However, before we get into any of those two matches, want to recap how the women's semifinals went on Thursday, and we're also going to talk about some news that has gone on on the men's tour over the last day or so. But starting off with the actual picks from the last episode, not good. Starting off with the lock, ended up losing with Sabalenka, minus one and a half games at minus 140. Sabalenka, we ended up backing in the French Open semi, and she choked that match away entirely. And it wasn't as bad of a choke as the French Open semi, but it was still a pretty bad choke as Sabalenka fell apart for us as Sabalenka did win the first set 7-6 so we just needed her to win the second set and she was in good shape because she was up a break as she ended up breaking to love at 2-2 to go up 3-2 while serving uh held at 4-2 and then Jabor held to make it 3-4 and then you ended up seeing Sabalenka have 40-30 and advantage at 4-3 so she was one point away from being up 5-3 got broken but she get she went up above 30 in the next return game at 4-4, had a break point at 30-40, could not convert, and then got broken immediately to lose the set right after it. And then in the third set, Jabor kind of took over, and you ended up seeing Sabalenka lose the final set 6-3. So the final scoreboard might suggest that it was a very close battle, which it was, but for one and a half games, if you're up a set and a break, and then you give up the break and have another break point chance with a chance to serve out the match... It's a pretty rough beat, and Sabalenka had a shot to be the number one player in the world in the rankings. If she won Wimbledon, then she fell apart again. So props to Jabor, don't get me wrong, for coming back and winning. But Sabalenka kind of just had that match. I don't want to say on a platter, but 10, 15 more minutes of good effort, and she would have won, and then she fell apart. So Sabalenka choked it away for us, picked up a loss there, and then for the dog, ended up having... The over two and a half sets in the Svitolina and Vendrosva match, as that was available at plus 125. And unfortunately for us, Svitolina kind of no-showed the match. It was 6-3, 6-3. The final set was pretty competitive. A lot of games went to deuce in that set. But for the most part, you're looking at Svitolina, who just forgot how to serve, because Vendrosva kind of just dominated the return games. Svitolina had no aces. She landed 73% of her first serves, which is a solid percentage. And yet, with that 73%, she only won 44 per, she won 48% of her first serve points and 38% of her second serve points. So simply put, Svitolina couldn't serve, and Vendrozova just straight up dominated the return games, which is why Vendrozova broke Svitolina six times in the match. So that really wasn't close. Embarrassing showing there by Svitolina, who beat some really good competition to get to this point, and then kind of just rolled over in the semifinal. But the Sabalenka loss is pretty brutal. Either way, went 0-2. Look for a uh, sweep here in the men's uh, semis. But before we get into any of the men's semifinal matches, do you want to talk about some drama that's been unfolding over the last day or so involving Alcaraz and involving Djokovic? Now, I find the actual practice sessions for tennis players to be fascinating 
because you can make an argument that they're working on specific material for their next opponent, or maybe they are just trying to stay sharp going into the match. The point is it really comes down to what you think an individual player's mindset is for practice. I know Nadal, for example, used to never really hit normal shots in practice. Instead, he would go for the impossible running forehand shots, all the insane shots that you would never think he'd actually be, I'd say, needing to hit, but he would go through them just as a a last-case scenario or a break-in-case emergency prep session where if he would have to hit a running forehand that seemed impossible, maybe a banana forehand, he'd practice it so he'd be able to hit it in matches. So Nadal was never a fully standard practice guy, just for example. He'd always go through the crazy shots in practice to fully prepare in case he needed those in his back pocket for the following match. The reason why I bring it up is because of the fact that there's been some controversy going on with Alcaraz and how Alcaraz's father might have been seen recording Djokovic practice sessions. Now, you can make the argument, once again, it's a practice session. Who cares? Because Djokovic might just be working on some basic fundamentals, working on some overall uh, footwork, some basic drills, and you can make an argument that it really doesn't mean anything. On the other hand, you can make an argument that it's not in good taste or sportsmanship to record fellow competitors without their, I don't want to say that without their consent, but at least with recording them trying to gain a specific edge. And for the record, I think the second uh, argument there is insane. I think that we all know if you go to an event, if you've been to the U.S. Open or the French Open or to Wimbledon or even the Australian Open, a lot of these practice sessions and practice courts are open to the public where they can just sit behind a chain fence and just watch the player practice. I've seen Djokovic practice before. I've seen Nadal practice before. I don't stay that long because I don't really want to watch practice sessions when I can watch regular matches. But the point is, it's not like Alcaraz and his father broke into a private venue to record, and it's not a Spygate situation with the Patriots. At the end of the day, you're looking at a spot where Alcaraz's father took advantage of what was free access to the public and took a camera out and started recording. Do I really care? No, not really, to be honest with you. Now, if you want to, uh, you know, demonize Alcaraz and his father for it, that's your choice. I'm not going to do that. But I feel like a lot of people are saying, well, Alcaraz has an unfair advantage. Now this is going to change some things. How is this supposed to change anything? Djokovic has won seven Wimbledon titles. I'm sure most of those matches are online nowadays. And you're telling me Alcaraz is going to beat Djokovic and do something that nobody's done on center court in roughly 10 years because his father recorded a practice session? Like, give me a break. I, I feel like at this point, if you're trying to make this a story, you really just don't like Alcaraz that much. And if you're not making it a story, then you recognize how trivial this whole situation is and how it doesn't really mean much. So I'm in Camp B. I think Djokovic, once again, is the greatest player of all time. And a big reason is because he's so unbeatable at Wimbledon. He's has not lost on center court for 10 plus years. So if Alcaraz thinks that recording a practice session is going to actually change anything, be my guest. But the public outra outrage for it is really just uncalled for, in my opinion. I think that the father saw an opportunity to get something on film, maybe something he can teach his son to account for going into the final in theory. But then again, you can make an argument that if you're looking at the purpose of practice, you're trying to prepare for your next match, and Djokovic is preparing for center. 
and Alcaraz should be preparing for Medvedev. So I'm not sure how much this actually matters. For example, if Alcaraz found something against Djokovic, let's just say his father found some type of flaw in Djokovic's game, which probably doesn't exist, but for the sake of this hypothetical situation, let's say they found something on tape and Alcaraz loses to Medvedev in the semis. Then who cares? Like, he still has to beat Medvedev, and Djokovic still has to beat Sinner. So I'm not going to immediately assume that Djokovic and, and Alcaraz are looking ahead to the final. I don't buy that for a second. So I don't really think it's going to matter too much. I just think that I had to bring it up because that was a bit of a Twitter situation on the tennis Twitter where people were kind of losing their minds, and they made a whole big deal out of it, and I didn't think it really meant much. But, you know, if I was going to be a coach or maybe a father figure for uh, an athlete and you're telling me right now I can get film on who my team might be playing against or who my kid might be playing against, am I going to pull out a camera? Maybe. I'm just saying. But when Djokovic has been on TV all the time for 10-plus, 15-plus years, I'm not sure one practice session is going to do anything. It seemed pretty trivial. I don't really care. If Alcaraz beats Djokovic, good for him. But I don't think he's going to beat him because his father recorded a practice match. Djokovic, or practice session. Djokovic is undefeated in center court in Wimbledon for over 10 years. Good luck. That's all I'm going to say. We'll see what happens. But anyway, time to actually get into the match previews here for the men's semis. Starting off with the first match on the calendar, uh, it's going to be the Sinner and Djokovic match. And for this matchup, Djokovic is a pretty big favorite. Having said that there, having said that there has been some money coming in on Sinner over the last couple of hours, Djokovic is around minus 500, Sinner's plus 400. The over-under is at 36.5, minus 115 to the over, minus 105 to the under. As for the uh, spread, Djokovic minus 5.5 is minus 120. And center plus five and a half is even money. If you want to take some multiple lines, you can get 35 and a half games at minus 130 to the over and even money on the under. You can get 37 and a half at minus 105 to the over, minus 125 to the under. If you want four sets or more, you can get four sets or more at minus 140. Straight sets for either players plus 110. If you want Djokovic to win straight sets, you can get that at plus 130. Center to win a set is minus 160. Now, this matchup might seem familiar because this was the quarterfinal matchup last year where Sinner was up two sets to nothing, and then Djokovic ended up coming back and winning in five. He also hit that insane split passing shot in the fifth set. Maybe you remember that where he did the airplane celebration while on the floor. But the point is, Djokovic is a worthy favorite, obviously. He's won seven Wimbledon titles here. He has not lost at Wimbledon once again, for a long, long time, especially on center court. So I'm not picking center to win. I'm going to get that out of the way right now. I think Djokovic is going to win. Having said that, do I think that he's going to win comfortably? Not really. I kind of see it being similar to the Rublev match in the quarters, where I really just see Djokovic maybe coming out flat and then center falling apart. Because center, don't get me wrong, has made a good run here. But you're looking at his overall level of competition, and it's one of the easiest quarters I've ever seen. And I'm not even exaggerating. It is one of the easiest quarters I've ever seen a player have in a Grand Slam. So he beat Juan Martin, uh, sorry, he beat uh, yeah, Sarandolo, J.M. Sarandolo in the first round. Not good on grass at all. Won that one in straight sets. Beat Schwartzman, who might be cooked at this point in straight sets. Beat Hallis in four. Hallis is fine, but once again, not exactly a highly ranked player. 
as Hallis is currently ranked 79th in the ATP rankings. Then he had a three-set match against Galan. Galan was also a Cinderella story there. And then he finished it off by beating Safulin in the quarterfinals. Once again, he barely faced off against anybody because everybody in the center's quarter lost. So no offense to Sinner here, but I got to at least point out that his solid run is partially based to a very easy draw. And because of that, I do think that he might be a little bit, I don't want to say overvalued, but a little bit unpredictable in this match because he hasn't exactly been pushed and he's going up against a massive step up in competition because his best opponent up to this point has arguably been Safulin, which is once again a far cry from Djokovic. So you can make an argument maybe Sinner gets waxed here. Uh, if Djokovic shows up and Sinner's potentially not in great form and it's been disguised by a very weak level of competition. But Sinner, I think, is going to give Djokovic a run for his money. I'm not sure if it's going to go five or not, but I do think Sinner's going to win a set. So I am tempted by the over three and a half sets here and minus 140. At the end of the day, we've seen Djokovic win Wimbledon for a long, long time. But last year, you might remember, he did drop a lot of sets uh, in the last couple of rounds. Ended up dropping the first two sets to Sinner in the quarters. Dropped the set to Nori. Dropped the set to Kyrgios in the in the final. The point is Djokovic wins, but he gets off to some slow starts. And I do think that Sinner can capitalize on that. And Sinner is, of course, good enough with the firepower that he has to make life difficult for Djokovic. If Djokovic has a lackluster 10-plus minutes and then gets back on track. But I do think that this match should probably go four. Djokovic ended up losing a set to Hercatch. He lost a set to Rublev. So he has been dropping some sets lately, which is similar to what we saw last year. As a result, I will go with the over three and a half sets in this match. And minus 140. I think you'll end up seeing Djokovic probably win in four or five. But besides that, though, really not much more to add. I think Djokovic, if you want to make an argument for maybe over 20 and a half games, personal games on the team total for Djokovic at minus 110, I don't hate that, but then again, there are much more profitable ways to cash an over on this uh, while also getting better odds. Because if he gets a 20 and a half, that means he's going to be winning most likely in four sets, or it's going to be a relatively long match. Because you can make an argument that maybe Djokovic ends up winning 7 6, 7 6, 7 6. It's not realistic. So if he gets a 20 and a half, that means that he is going to win three sets and lose a set. But why would I take that when I could just take, for example, over three and a half sets or Djokovic to win in four at plus 270? I don't see much value on that. Now, for the actual games at five and a half, it is a bit tricky because I, I can see a world where Sinner maybe gets smacked in a set, maybe loses 6-2. So that could make life difficult for the spread. And I do think, once again, five and a half feels like a pretty good number. So I'm going to stay away from that. I think if I was going to look at a total... I would lean to the over 35 and a half. But my main lean for this match is probably going to be the over three and a half sets. I think it goes four or five. Djokovic wins, and Djokovic is going to most likely win his eighth Wimbledon title, but we'll see. I think Sinner is no slouch, though, so give me a competitive match because of it. Now, moving on to the other semifinal, you have a matchup between uh, Djokovic. You have a matchup, sorry, between uh, Medvedev and Alcaraz. And Alcaraz is a pretty decent favorite here at minus 240. Medvedev is plus 200. As for the game spread, you can get three and a half games on Alcaraz at minus 130, plus three and a half on Medvedev at even money. If you want to get four and a half, you can get Alcaraz at plus 105 and Medvedev plus four and a half at minus 125. Over-unders at 38 and a half at minus 135 to the over, plus 105 to the under. 
39.5 is minus 108 to the over, minus 112 to the under. And if you wanted this match to go four sets or more, you can get that a minus 185. Straight set win for either player is plus 155. Alcaraz to win uh, in three or four sets, so minus one and a half sets is minus 130. Uh, Medvedev to win uh, the match with the same exact spread here, minus one and a half sets is plus 400, which I do find relatively large, but I guess it makes sense because Medvedev is a plus 200 underdog. Now, to go through the head-to-head, Alcaraz won of the most recent meeting uh, in the final in a two-out-of-three set match a couple of months ago where Alcaraz played some of the best tennis I've ever seen, and Alcaraz won that one in straight sets. However, they did face off in Wimbledon a couple of years ago, and Medvedev did win that one in straight sets. It was before Alcaraz's glow-up, so I'm not fully swayed by that match because Alcaraz has become the number one player in the world ranking-wise since that point, and he had a massive ascension. So I'm not sure if it's the same exact situation there. I don't want to toss it out fully, but I have to at least point out I'm not putting much stock into that match. Now, Medvedev had a difficult time in the semi. I mentioned it before that he was down two sets to one to Eubanks, and then Eubanks kind of fell apart, but uh, Medvedev raised his level. Alcaraz has been dominant for a while on grass. Really, ever since he got pushed to the brink against Rinderknich in the first round of Queens Club, he's been rolling. Medvedev has his work cut out for him, let's put it that way. But Alcaraz has only dropped two sets in each of his last nine... Sorry, he's only dropped two sets in his nine... Uh, his last nine grass matches combined. So, in Alcaraz's last nine grass matches, dating back to Queens Club, he's dropped a total of two sets against Jari and Berrettini, two guys who are pretty decent on grass. Berrettini's our former runner-up at Wimbledon, and he was in good form beating the likes of Zverev, for example, in straight sets. But Alcaraz has been really, really good, and he was able to beat Rune in straight sets because of some really good serving. Medvedev struggled against Eubanks, made some adjustments, but I really think that Alcaraz is a bad matchup for Medvedev because we saw how badly Medvedev looked in the first couple of sets against Eubanks because Eubanks was serve and volleying him to death and Medvedev was standing so far back on the court. The problem is Alcaraz can serve and volley and he's also a great rallier, which is Eubanks' biggest problem. Eubanks is not exactly known for being a good rallier, so once Medvedev got the return in, Eubanks had a massive disadvantage when it came to winning the point because his rallying skills were not that good and that's the main flaw he has in his game. As for Alcaraz, he's good at everything. So he's a very good server, good volleyer, and he can handle these massively long rallies against Medvedev and fare pretty well. So I do think, once again, you're looking at a spot where Alcaraz really checks a lot of boxes for what you need to do in order to beat Medvedev, not to mention the fact that Alcaraz is pretty, I'd say, stoic on the court. I know that emotionally he struggled against Djokovic in the French Open, but for the most part, we know that Alcaraz is a a pretty mentally tough guy and I do think that Medvedev, even though he was very mentally tough in that, in that quarterfinal matchup against Eubanks, we've seen him struggle with his emotions at times, and we've seen his temper get the best of him on occasion. And I do think Alcaraz will make life difficult for Medvedev. Maybe you'll see Medvedev double fault a lot. Maybe he'll br- get broken a lot. But Alcaraz, we know how good he can be. We know how good his overall just repertoire is, because he's good at basically everything. I'm not sure how many flaws he has, but Medvedev, once again, is a very good player, but going five against Eubanks isn't exactly inspiring much confidence, at least for me, and having faith in Medvedev to actually win this match. 
I'm not picking Medvedev. I think the value here is going to be on Alcaraz, minus one and a half sets. I think he wins in three or four. Alcaraz is also a very good tiebreak player, and I do think that Medvedev, once again, is going to struggle with some first-serve percentage stuff, struggle with some double faults, and Alcaraz will be able to generate pressure in a lot of these Medvedev service games in route to potentially winning in three or four. So overall, I have a pretty anticlimactic match here. I think Alcaraz wins in three or four sets. Might be close, maybe get a tiebreaker in there, but I do think Alcaraz will get the job done by matches end. So that's going to wrap it up for the actual uh, recap for, or I should say preview for the men's semifinal matches in Wimbledon. Now it's time for the lock and dog plays, but before getting to that, can I have a quick word from our sponsor. We're also brought to you by Circa Sports. Circa Millions and Circa Survivor are back. $14 million in guaranteed prizes up for grabs. Circa Millions is pretty simple. Five NFL picks against the spread each week. There's a leaderboard, and depending on how well you do, you can make yourself some serious money. On top of that, Circa Survivor is a different but fun way to get in on the NFL action. Pick a different Moneyline winner each week. You cannot use, once again, the same team twice, and whoever's the last team standing or last person standing ends up winning the grand prize, or if most multiple people do make it to the end of the season, then you chop whatever the grand prize is. And on top of that, you can enter in Vegas, but play from anywhere using a proxy. And Sports Game Podcast will be out there last weekend in August. So stop by and say hi to the gang. CircusSports.com for all the details. CircusSports.com. What would you do if you ended up winning all that money? Possibilities are endless. I would probably go on vacation. I'd travel a lot, maybe buy a ticket to the Super Bowl. We'd see. But the point is, it would be a lot of fun to, of course, get in on the action by winning. And for me, the picks that I'll look at for Survivor, there's a lot of potential options. Once again, the season's so far out there. I would fade the Cardinals, just simply put, with Kyler being on the shelf. And we know Arizona's got the lowest win total of any team. I'd probably just fade the Cardinals, play it safe. There's different philosophies when it comes to Survivor, where some people try to save the best teams for last Others try to just get the best teams out of the way because you have more faith in them. I'm more of an option B guy. I'd rather just try to survive as long as possible and worry about the planning after. But I do think taking the commanders in the first game at home against the Cardinals is worth a look because the Cardinals should be a mess. So that would be my thoughts for the week one of Survivor. But once again, get in on the action at Circus Sports, CircusSports.com for all of the details. We're also brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. Best Ball Mania 4 is here, and Underdog Fantasy is giving away $15 million in prizes. Underdog Pick'em is also another great way to get down your favorite MLB and college baseball player props. So many ways to win over at Underdog, and it's active in so many states. Head over to UnderdogFantasy.com. Use the promo code SGPN for a 100% deposit bonus up to $100. It's UnderdogFantasy.com, promo code SGPN. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast. Just finished previewing the Wim- the uh, Wimbledon semifinal matchups on the men's side. Now it's time for the lock and dog picks. Starting off with the lock, I am actually going to go back to that Medvedev and Alcaraz match, and I am going to go with Alcaraz minus one and a half sets at minus 130. Simply put, I just think he's the much better player. Medvedev has been solid, but you're looking at who he's faced off against in this particular event. And Medvedev hasn't exactly had to face off against great competition either. It wasn't as easy as Sinner, don't get me wrong. But you're looking at his overall pathway, beat Ferry in the first round, beat Manorino in the second round. That's a good win. I'll give him credit for that. Beat Fuksovics in four. Fuksovics is a pretty good grass player, but ranking-wise, he is fine. Uh, ranked 67th, so not exactly an amazing win in terms of ranking there. Uh, also had a win against Laheshka. 
Plashka had a five-set marathon against Tommy Paul, had nothing left in the tank, and ended up having to retire. But that was basically a free win there for Medvedev, too. And then had a, a five-set war against Eubanks. So his best wins basically against Eubanks or Manorino, which is fine. But once again, not exactly the greatest competition. And I do think that as a result, uh, it's a massive step up in competition for Medvedev, and he might struggle because of it. Alcaraz, though, has faced off against some really good players, ended up beating Jari, who's had a great year. Berrettini, who I know is having a bad year going into Wimbledon, but he looked pretty good. And Berrettini, we know, is a very good grass court player. And then he beat Rune in straight sets. So Alcaraz has looked sharper against better competition. He did win the first match in the head-to-head this year in Indian Wells, 6-3, 6-2. It was a bloodbath. I know that Medvedev is pretty good on grass, but Alcaraz does seem pretty comfortable on the surface at this point in time. I like Alcaraz to win in three or four sets at minus 130. I just think that the serve and volley will be there. The rallying will be there where Eubanks fell apart because of it. And I do think that he will be able to wear down Medvedev over the course of these three or four sets while also relying on Medvedev's uh, potential mental lapses to undo his progress. And I do think that, once again, Medvedev might struggle with his first serve percentage, maybe gifting away some free points with double faults. And I can see a world where Medvedev starts yelling at the chair umpire, maybe starts yelling at his box. But Alcaraz, we know he's, for the most part, going to be fully, fully stoic in this match. And I think that's going to be a really nice, uh, I'd say, additional edge for Alcaraz in this matchup. So give me Alcaraz minus one and a half sets at minus 130 as my lock. And for my dog, I actually thought about doing something fun here. So I'm going to do it. I know it's been a pretty bad Wimbledon for us with the lock and dog picks, but I am going to go back to one prop that actually made us a lot of money earlier in the French Open. And of course, I'm talking about the Varias play with the player to lose the first set and win the match. And I am going to go with that. Same exact prop in the Djokovic and Sinner match. I'm going to take Djokovic to lose the first set and win the match, and that is available at plus 550 on DraftKings. Now, there's a couple reasons why I'm going to take this. First of all, I'm picking Djokovic to win, and he's minus 475. So I'm not going to find much value taking Djokovic. Now, I think Sinner, from what we saw last year, he's capable of taking at least one set against Djokovic. I like the over three and a half sets. We've seen Djokovic struggle in the first set recently, losing the first set to Rublev. He should have lost the first set to Hercatch. Hercatch was up 6-3 in the first set tiebreaker and choked it. But the point is Djokovic has been vulnerable in the first set in the last couple of matches. And Sinner, we've seen, get off to good starts against Djokovic at Wimbledon before. So I do think that Sinner is in a pretty good spot to maybe hit the ground running here. Djokovic might come out a bit flat. Maybe you see him wake up after that. But once again, you're trying to find value and you're getting roughly a $10 differential by getting a minus 475 favorite to lose the first set and win the match at plus 550. That's a $10 swing. Like, that's a hell of a deal. And if you want to play it safe, maybe you want to take Djokovic to win in four, which is available at plus 270. I don't mind that either. But if you want to give me roughly two times the money comparing Djokovic in four to Sinner to win the first set and Djokovic to win the match... I think Djokovic's most likely set to lose is the first set based on what we've seen lately and based on what we saw in Wimbledon last year where Djokovic kind of uses the first set as a feeling out process and then he wakes up after that and destroys opponents. But I think there's value on this. I think that plus 550 is a really good deal for Sinner to win the first set and lose the match. 
I'm going to take it. I think that's a very solid long shot play. And there's a lot of value on it. And I'm quickly going to do some shopping around to see if I could find a better price on it. I doubt it. But once again, I think that's a great deal. We've done it once on this show and we made a lot of money taking Varias to come back from a set down, basically losing the first set and winning. I think that center can really get this done where win where winning the first set is going to apply some initial pressure. And then you see Djokovic wake up and bury him. So I think that's probably what we're going to end up seeing. But I do think when you're looking at the overall uh, match itself, you're going to see a battle between two players that are going to have moments. Djokovic probably is going to have more moments, but I'm hoping Sinner realizes that all the pressure is on Djokovic because no one's picking him to win. Hits a lot of powerful winners in the first set, and maybe you end up seeing him feel free which should end up resulting in a solid set of tennis for Sinner. But I'm going to go with the value. So give me once again Djokovic to lose the first set and win the match at plus 550 on DraftKings. So once again, the lock and dog for the show, the lock is going to be on Alcaraz minus one and a half sets at minus 130. And the dog will be Sinner to win the first set and Djokovic to win the match at plus 550 on DraftKings. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. We'll be back once again uh, for the women's final uh, taking place on, uh, I believe, Saturday. So keep an eye out for that. And then on top of that, I will also, of course, be doing the uh, men's final on Sunday. So keep an eye out for those two podcasts. Other than that, though, find me on Twitter, Rice Show Radio. Uh, until next time, good luck to all of you and all of your bets. Bye, everyone.